as well as Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 891. I'd like to read those responsively tonight, so I'd ask you to turn to page 891, back of the hymnal. We'll look at question and answers 105, 106, and 107 tonight. In the Word of God, we read that very short and pointed commandment, you shall not murder. And then the writers of the Catechism set before us that teaching. I will read question 105 and ask you to respond with the answer. What is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? Question 106 asks, does this commandment refer only to murder? The answer? Then turning over to question 107, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? Beloved in Christ, this commandment, as at its base, declares that murder is wrong, that of unjust killing. We recognize that God has entrusted the state with the sword to prevent unjust killing. There is severe penalty for those who would take the life of another unjustly, even death to them. It declares that all unjust Killing is forbidden. Abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide to terminally ill, other practices, all honor killings, ambushing of officers. We have before us a fairly clear command tonight. And it isn't uh, hard for us to understand it, yet we've lost a sense of this in our culture, this idea of the severity of taking the life of another. We talk about killing children as a right. We talk about killing the elderly and terminally ill as giving them death with dignity. We vilify those in law enforcement and make it appear as though they were guilty in the case, in the situation where they 
are violently assaulted. Murder has been with us for a very long time. We saw that this morning, the first murderer, Cain, murdering his brother Abel. The Sixth Commandment speaks against this act of killing. God was very angry with Cain. He said, do you realize what you have done? The blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. And you are cursed. The ground is cursed because of you. To you. Well, if you asked people today, they're guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments. If they knew them, they probably would admit that they've bore false witness. They've probably lied. They probably would acknowledge, if pressed, that they have disobeyed authority. They may have said that they may acknowledge they've stolen, but few would identify as murderers. Yet as we look closer at this commandment, we see that it prohibits more than the act. We're going to come to that, but first, uh, before we get there, the behavioral aspect of this sixth commandment. What does it prohibit? Well, it makes quite clear here what is prohibited.
that is supposed to be civil, that is supposed to be setting forth policy, and instead it, it speaks in a way that is dangerously close, if not guilty of murderous. You see it in riots. There is a murderous spirit in our culture. For we have turned away from God, refusing to obey his commands. And we, as the people of God, are to be different and distinct. In all of these ways, not just in withholding our hand from committing murder, but even in our speech, in our thoughts, in our gestures, our looks. We've heard that phrase, if looks could kill, I'd be dead. But how is it with us? How do we respond when we hear someone speaking on the television? We think, no one can hear what I just said to that person. Or what I thought about that person. The commandment goes much deeper than the act of murder. It forbids hatred, as we see. Now, there was a tradition in, a Jewish tradition in the interpretation of the Sixth Commandment, which said that it was okay to love our neighbor and to hate our enemy. In, John, in, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses that. He says, there is a tradition among you, and he says it, it I'll invite you to turn there if you, if you so desire. Matthew 5 and verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said. Now he's, he's addressing a tradition that has come to, to the fore in, in uh, Jewish interpretation of the law. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There was a false conclusion drawn from that Old Testament law from Leviticus uh, 19, which said this, that we can love our neighbor while hating our enemy. The neighbor was, of course, a fellow Jew, those who were like us, those who had similar outlook on life, indeed, who were similar in law and keeping of the law. Non-Jews were not neighbors and deserved no kindness, indeed, could be hated. This was a promotion of the segregation of society, and, and we see that today. Those who are the enlightened or the, the woke versus those who are not. And we hear of how, of how the, the, the way that we can become restored one to another, and that is, and that is if we follow their, their law, their standard, which is that we are to reject all divine authority and do whatever they say. And what is our response to that? It is to hate those people. It is to despise them and wish they didn't exist if we are truthful and honest. We wish it was like the good old days. And then I was talking with someone, an elderly member, who's a shut-in from this congregation just this past week, and he said, the good old days weren't so good, Pastor. The language that was used on the job site, the foulness, the the, the vengeful language, the, the threats, and I said, oh, I thought, it was, I thought it was the good old days back then. And he said, oh, no. You see, it isn't the age that we live in that is the issue. Again, it's like this morning. It's the heart. Where are our hearts? Do we understand God's law? Do we want to live in light of 
that law? Or do we make our own traditions? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. False conclusion. Jesus declared what true children of God look like in going further. He said, but I say to you, as the authoritative interpretation of the law, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who wish you didn't exist. Those who wish you would disappear. And why does he say that? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that is a standard far above what we often practice. Jesus says, if you are to be like your Father in heaven, you will love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let me remind you of those words again of the answer in the catechism. I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, certainly not by actual deeds. And I'm not to be party to this in others. I'm to put away all desire for revenge. How do you feel about that, young people, when someone pranks you or something like that or just picks on you? Do you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, I really love that person? <laughs> you don't, do you? You think, how am I going to get even? How am I going to settle the score? Yet here we are told that we are to act differently. How is it with you, older young people? How do you act at work? How does your speech reflect those? Is it similar to those around you? Or does does it set a different tone? Does it have a different source? Is it that which says, if I love God above all else and have him as the only God in my life, and I'm worshiping him as he desires, if I'm not taking his name in vain, if I'm honoring his day, then I'm loving my neighbor. How am I showing that to authority? How am I showing that to my neighbor, even the ones around me who are not believers? Are you like Those who say, boy, I met a Christian the other day, and if looks could kill, I'd be dead. This commandment prohibits such looks. It's convicting, certainly for me, and I trust for you, that it has this depth to it. Because it is so easy for us to break this commandment. No desire for revenge. No desire. Not a single thought of desire or of, of revenge. How often can't we see, even in those who serve the Lord, 
that desire for revenge. One that came to mind as I was thinking of the sermon was Samson. What a strange character. We could do a character study on him. The revenge that he took. Not the example that we want to follow. Again, we would look deeper at what, how, how the Lord used him, but certainly that desire for revenge was not a quality that we pursue. Question and answer 106 says, does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Cain murdered his brother because he was filled with rage. We saw that this morning. That's the, that's the word in the, in the Hebrew there in Genesis 4-5. I have a burden to, to deal a bit with that notion of anger tonight as I was thinking about this Lord's Day. How do we look at anger? So we've set before us how, how careful we have to be, how, how circumspect we need to be in the way we we relate to others, but now I want us to look at that idea of anger tonight and, and see how it is something that can be used in a way that honors God. Say, so now wait a minute, after all you've said, how are you going to look at anger as that which can be used for good? Well, follow along with me. Paul says in Ephesians four twenty seven. In your anger, do not sin. Or 426, be angry and yet do not sin. I think the NIV translates it, do not be angry. But it's more accurately, be angry and yet do not sin. There is a place for anger. We mention the word anger and we become, right away we say, that's bad, that's automatically a negative thing. Indeed, we've just expressed how very quickly we can become angry on the athletic field, in traffic, at work, and and it can very quickly become murderous. But anger is not something that we can get rid of. And why is that? Because it's part of being made in God's image. God gets angry. Now, be careful how we read that. When God gets angry, it is never sinful. It is never out of control. His anger is a holy revulsion to that which would attack his beautiful creation. It is so very hard to be angry and not, and not then be angry with the person who's speaking, or the person who's acting in a sinful way. So this commandment is so very difficult for us as we think about it. Anger quickly becomes murderous, but anger can be used rightly. We ought to have a strong reaction to whatever would seek to ruin God's good creation. In his book, Good and Angry, David Paulison seeks to present what is good anger? He says this. What, he, he defines anger this way, and I think this is very helpful. 
What is anger? What common thread runs through every form of anger, whether good or bad? At its core, anger is very simple. It expresses, I'm against that. It is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. Now, as human beings, we're wired with that capacity to make moral judgments because we're made in the image of God. We see something that's wrong and we react often violently. We often react that way, but we are to be displeased toward wrong with, against sin and to act forcefully or correctly, rightly, to make wrongs right. Paulison says this, we're moral beings made in the image of God, so we are wired to operate in anger's logic. That matters, that's important, and it's wrong. So we're not called to just simply go around naively, blissfully, disconnected from the world and all that we see. We make judgments, and when we see something as wrong, we are to respond appropriately but not in a murderous way, wishing the, subject, or the object dead. The one who is committing that act. Paulison says, anger always makes a value judgment. It's a moral matter. Like God, we come wired to size things up, to feel displeasure at wrong, and to act in order to do something about it. This commandment prohibits sinful anger. Sinful anger draws wrong conclusions. It takes wrong action. We're to be for others. That's what the second table of the law is all about. We can disagree with them. Often we do, or often we must disagree where there is sin where there is a position held that can be harmful, even destructive to that person or to others. But in our strong emotional response, we must not wish the other person dead or take any action to that end. Anger can warp our hearts if we lose sight of what is to control, namely the spirit and the word of God. Every careless word, every thoughtless deed will be judged by God, we read in Matthew 12, 36. So our emotional life must be informed by the word. We must submit to the Holy Spirit. It is right and good to disagree with someone when there is something happening or something being done that is destructive or harmful. Good anger shows displeasure with that which is wrong, that which is against God and his word. There are standards no one would want to live in a world where there are no value judgments made as to right and to wrong. If you and I were indifferent to or approving of child abusers or terrorists or cheats, we would be seen as morally underdeveloped at the very least, morally defective. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and yet do not sin. We should express strong emotion against actions and words which seek to subvert the truth and which would, which would divide and destroy. 
But it's hard to do that without taking our thoughts to the next level and wanting to deal justly with that person. But at the end of Romans 12, what do we read? It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It is not ours to do so. Sinful anger must be repented of. Sinful anger is anger directed at the wrong at a person that's wrong and motivated by wrong reasons and out of proportion to the offense. Sinful anger holds grudges, refuses to extend forgiveness, and refuses to trust others even when they have given grounds for what they're doing. Biblical grounds, good grounds. Galatians 5 warns many of the sins that are warned against there. Indeed, half the list that Paul gives are sins of anger. Fits of anger, strife, dissensions are works of the flesh. And those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We must not let our anger get an, give an opportunity to the devil, as Paul states it. It, it. It's a fine line, and it's something that we need to think about each and every day. Why is anger so attractive? Because so often we see it getting something. If I get angry, I get what I want. If I shout louder, I get what I want. Children, do you try that at home? <laughs> if I shout, maybe I'll get what I want. If I really set a tantrum, I'll get what I want. That's wrong. We're to honor those in authority over us. We've seen that already in the commandments. And be patient with failings and be submissive where they call us parents to to correct us to do what is right i was thinking about the superhero movie the avengers as i was thinking about anger there's a character in the movie when he gets angry he turns into the hulk right we all know about well most of us know about the hulk and things get are going from bad to worse it's it's kind of a picture of our of our culture there's things are going from bad to worse and one of the other characters in the movie says to the to the man who changes into the hulk i think it would be a good time for you to get angry like that's because that will solve things that will that your rage will will even the tide it will turn the tables and he says this very very uh searching he says that's my secret i'm always angry And he's out of control when he carries out his anger. But he gets results, and so we think, wow, this is, this is me. This is what I want to be. How searching for us. This sounds so powerful. It seems so, so effective. But anger destroys. Satan wants that. Satan wants us to be divided wants to divide us up by appealing to our anger and getting us to exercise it in a destructive way. But the word of God says that anger that does not build up, that does not protect, that does not promote truth is sinful. Jesus shows a perfect anger when 
the temple was being misused as a marketplace rather than as a place of prayer and for worship. He was angry, rightly so, for that was to be the place for worship. But when he's on the cross, what does he say? He doesn't get angry with his enemies. He says this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. What a picture for us and how to live. We ask ourselves, does anger promote life? A vengeful anger does not. An envious anger does not. A self-righteous anger does not. Anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, James says, as he's talking to the Christians to whom he's writing, or is he writing to, to these Christians saying, anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And he's speaking of that div- divisive, that divisive anger. Not against the devil and against lies, but against other, others around them. Sinful anger destroys. Question answer 107 does give a positive, uh, some positive aspects to this commandment. It asks, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? We're tying closely to that anger, anger and that murderous intent. The Bible goes beyond simply telling us not to be sinfully angry. It tells us how to treat one another. No, it says this, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Wow, (laughs) again, so very challenging to us. There's a word I want to use that I was thinking about and, and, and looked up the definition for. We need to be more magnanimous. We don't use that word very much anymore. Let me give you the definition for that. Magnanimous is this, a loftiness of spirit which enables one to bear trouble calmly, to disdain meanness and pettiness, and to display a noble generosity. We live in a world where people have become easily offended, highly entitled, and personally vengeful. Our present moment has made it easier to demonize others. We get on our little phones and, boy, we can say some things that are so easy to say because we're not facing the person. We can say whatever we want, spew all kinds of vile language. It becomes very easy for us to attack others today, to be murderous. It takes... Great sanctification to love and to talk directly to those with whom we disagree or those who have said things about us that are not right. To be for our neighbor and not against him or her. This commandment teaches that we are not to separate into fractious groups. For God has made every nation of men from one man to live in harmony with each other Paul says in Acts chapter 17. And we recognize that the gospel unites us and reconciles us to each other. We should be witnesses to that, what that looks like. 
even when we have differing opinions on things. Certainly amongst the family of God, and even so in the, in the world around us. To love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Loving those who love you says nothing of God's work, Jesus says. Even the tax collectors do that. Greet your brothers. What more do you, are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. But you, you are to be perfect. You are to love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We hear these accounts of the persecuted church around the world. We've, we heard some just the other night at our, our meeting of those who are being persecuted, individuals, and they're praying for their enemies. They're witnessing to them. They're seeking to proclaim the truth, even though their enemy wants to take everything that they have materially from them. And they're saying, well, that's what the Bible tells us to do. (laughs) That's what the new life looks like. Paul says, as far as it is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. So in standing for the truth of God's word, we do well to minimize our offendedness at every offense given by others and to praise what we can in others, even in those who oppose us. That's what it means to be magnanimous. In an age where everyone is scrambling to be more offended than someone else, more victimized than others, more aggrieved, where apologies are routinely demanded and offendedness is next to godliness, we have much to steer clear of that our culture sets before us as the only path to getting what you want and what you need. When we reflect upon the depth of this commandment, we see that there is much sanctification that has to take place in each one of us. And much that we need to pray to God for, that he would transform us, that we truly would be a community that is odd to the watching world because we love even those who hate and despise us. But we recognize that in Christ we've been brought together. What an example Christ gave us when upon the cross, facing the vile comments of, his, of those who hated him, prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You shall not murder. That means more than in the act. It means no belittling on our social media accounts, no hatred, no insulting, not in my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, not to be party to this in others, to put away all desire for revenge. Indeed, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, to do good even to our enemies. Thanks be to God for our Savior who has rescued us from our sins, which we commit daily. May God give us the grace by his Spirit to live more in line with the commandments that he has given. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, how much sanctification we need, how much we need to learn of your heart, you who have reconciled yourself to us, we who hated you, by sending your only Son to offer up that sacrifice for our sins that we might be forgiven. Oh Lord, open our eyes to examine our hearts and our lives that we would know what to repent of, that we would pray for change, that we would work for change through the work of your spirit in us. Sanctify us by the truth, your word, O Lord, is truth. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.